13. The Fall. I can only imagine that a true scholar would be rolling their eyes at much of this, given my amateur and immature understanding of theology, philosophy, and the history of the Catholic Church. Likewise, I don't expect that I've stumbled onto anything new and that this may read as a typical recovery story. It's unlikely that someone will say, Stop the presses. Here's a leftover that found God after trying everything else. Wow. And an ex-drinker, too? It's unoriginal, I know. I'm well aware of it. Still, I'll continue in case somebody out there finds any of this pertinent to their own life situation. The major events that drove me to this spot in life, where I'm writing this at all and reading this to you, uh, are as follows. The faith of my childhood, the discovery of drinking, the pursuit of knowledge, my varied and failed attempts to quit drinking, the arrest for drunk driving, my subsequent search for meeting, meaning, and the baptism of my daughter, which takes me to my next stumbling block, the fall of man and original sin. These loaded terms were always a sticky point and I would guess might be for other religious nuns or atheists or agnostics. I thought this took a negative view of humanity and that we actually had more goodness inside than evil. Back in college, I felt this smacked of an opiate of the masses kind of Marxist argument. Then I spent 20 years trying to behave myself and failed miserably. The tree of knowledge of good and evil when taken literally, does seem a bit simplistic, but when taken literarily, becomes quite genius. As I mentioned in one of my prior takes on drinking, the apple on the tree of knowledge could have been a bottle of Jack Daniels or a Coors Light or a fancy cocktail. And as Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, once said, an apple. Have you ever been tempted by an apple? I would have been like, put some caramel on it and come back to me. Strange, but it seems familiar to me, this path of innocence, temptation, knowledge, suffering, separation from God, focusing on myself, and wandering in search of meaning. And, wait, wait, I have heard this before. It's the summarized version of my entire life. Obviously, the author of Genesis didn't need as many words as I do to make a point. Using only a tree, a serpent, and an apple, the whole tale of what's wrong with me was told in a few pages. Yet I need many thousands of words and asides to get to the same point. Apparently, I, I write much like I swim, which is zigzagging instead of aiming directly for the buoy. The apple is not really an apple. The apple is the source of temptation and the vices we cannot give up. The apple is drink, drugs, porn, news, possessions, fame, fortune, jealousy, hate. It's one or more of these, or additional items not included on that list. But in summary, it's something other than God. G.K. Chesterton said, The only dogma for which we have empirical evidence is the dogma of original sin. Watch the 11 o'clock news at night, or even better, watch what's going on inside of you. You'll see the evidence of original sin there, this deep level dysfunction that we can't solve on our own. And that is an enormously important door into Christianity. That quotes from Word on Fire, episode 270. 
at about 11 minutes in. St. Augustine famously said, Lord, let me be pure, but not yet. There is a yearning for goodness somewhere inside all of us, but we want to want to cling to our will and our vices because it's fun, or we believe that these sideshows represent freedom. I didn't want to let go of drinking, even though I knew that drinking continually disabled me from living the life I wanted to live. With alcohol in my life, I could never live up to the morals that I pretended to hold. I could not stick to an exercise program. I could not be honest with people. And every regret in my life, everyone came from a night of drinking. Without exception, every hurt I caused in this world could be drawn directly back to drinking. So removing my freedom to drink gave me all of the good things that I wanted and I became more free precisely because of self-denial. Unfortunately, vices and sin can be like a game of whack-a-mole, where you knock one vice down and another pops up. Pride, vanity, lust, anger, the urge to dominate others, knock any of these down, and they will re-emerge in another form, shape-shifting, always looking for cracks to crawl back into. Like a house, the slightest of gaps in windows or doors allows the outside air to seep inside, and you never notice the draft until suddenly you're shivering on a bitterly cold night. And only then you will notice the source of the problem, but it's been there the whole time, even during the days of good weather. There is much chatter in the past two decades about being good without God. And sure, you can be good without God. But the hollowness of that state crumbles under duress. In fact, someone pointed out the question is not, can a person be good without God, but can I? It's more of a question for each person. And I think the answer for me is not really. I recall the time I saw Richard Dawkins speaking at a bookstore in Portland, Oregon at Powell Books. At the time, I thought he was cool. I liked how he was undermining the faithful Pharisees of the modern age and and sowing discord among the Christian hypocrites. But in watching and listening to Dawkins, it dawned on me while I was in the bookstore, after only about 10 minutes, how miserable he seemed, even in his arguments. The smugness filled the room. In contrast, I thought of my grandmothers with their rosaries and the never-ending joy that they seemed to get from it, and that they could bring it to their families. I thought of the billions of people who found hope in faith. And Dawkins' uninspiring message made me leave that talk feeling empty, the opposite of how I felt around my grandmothers and other Christians. I entered as a Dawkins fan, only to leave kind of repulsed by his message. And that put me in a no-man's land because I couldn't accept God, nor could I reject God. If the selfish gene, to use his Dawkins term, was the driver of all motivation, then we are selfish, and therefore we're sinners anyway. And worse, without redemption, we are pretty much hopelessly evil. If there is only the rule of law to constrain our actions, then put on your seatbelts, because things are going to continue to get bumpy. Some people may be good without God, but not for long and not when times get really hard.
Yes, plenty of people pretend to be good with God, too. And I know some atheists and agnostics that have a stronger moral compass than, than many Christians I know. But without God, in the end, it's every man for himself. From the Catechism, paragraph 401, this, this paragraph relates. What revelation makes known to us is confirmed by our own experience. For when a man looks into his own heart, he finds that he is drawn toward what is wrong and sunk in many evils which cannot come from his good creator. By my own experience, I am aware of this problem. If and when I remove my focus from God, I will soon start to scowl and stew and distrust people, people and hate them for their foibles. When I keep prayer and hope alive, when I turn toward God, I can love my neighbor, or at least try, and ideally expect nothing in return. My story is like that of Peter being invited out of the boat to walk on the water. To quote Fulton Sheen, it was, he was courageous in the boat, but timid on the water. Like St. Peter, I too will sink when faced with fear and uncertainty if I lose focus. If I take my eyes off of Jesus, I'll fall. I'll let doubt discourage me. I will quickly turn my back on the one place from which I can draw strength. The dysfunction takes over. The creature within rises. And then I look for my apples, the ones I like to eat when I think God is not there. My favorite apple is knowledge. And it's like a knowledge is like the Honeycrisp apple to me. And I can only think of the screw tape letters Letter number one, as the method of distraction to pull me away from what is good back toward sin. To wind me up with doubt, I only need to apply racing thoughts. And here's screw tape letter number one passage from there. Your man has been accustomed, ever since he was a boy, to having a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste time trying to make him think that materialism is true. Make him think it is strong or stark or courageous that it is the philosophy of the future. That's the sort of thing that he cares about. I already know that I will lose focus and return to negative thinking and trip myself up over political, theological, or personal diversions. It's inevitable. Other Christians will likely be the ones that push me away, but instead of letting that happen, I need to hold the focus. Because after spending two decades searching for this, for God, it would be a shame to have to do it all over again when I already know the answer. Maybe Galadriel in Lord of the Rings said it best, summing up the condition. The, the hearts of men are easily corrupted, she said. The Catholic Church and Pat Benatar really agree. Love is a battlefield. From the Catechism, paragraph 409. Finding himself in the midst of the battlefield, man has to struggle to do what is right, 
And it is at great cost to himself and aided by God's grace that he succeeds in achieving his own inner integrity.